Okay, we're in Mark chapter 8, and we are as far as verse uh, 27. Mark 8, 27. So let's read, and then we'll pray, and then we'll study. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And for what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray. Father, we, we ask that as we come and as we study your word tonight that you would enable us to understand, enable us to see, help me to teach your truth accurately and faithfully. And uh, Father, we pray that ultimately you would be glorified through our study of your word this evening. Amen. Okay. So, just by way of recap, we've been going through a little cycle in Mark's Gospel. In uh, chapter 6, uh, through, to, well, end of chapter 6 through to, through to the end of chapter 7, we had the feeding of the 5,000, then Jesus crossed the lake, then on the other side there was controversy with the Pharisees, then there was some dialogue that involved bread and teaching, and then there was a healing uh, of a deaf, mute man. Then in chapter 8, we have the same cycle. This time we have a mass feeding again, the feeding of the 4,000. Again, there's a crossing of a lake. And again, on the other side, there is controversy with the Pharisees. After that, there is again some teaching and discussion that revolves around bread. And then again, there is the healing of uh, a blind man, which is where we left it last time. And so Mark takes us through these cycles. The first time in the cycle, the feeding of the 5,000 is predominantly Jewish people in, and in Jewish territory. The conflict with the Pharisees is one where Jesus rejects their teaching and their understanding of the law. 
The dialogue over the bread is one where a Gentile woman is able to interact with Jesus in a better way than the learned scribes could because she, unlike them, had faith. And then to represent this woman, a Gentile, who should not be able to hear, should not be able to understand, there is the healing of the deaf and the mute. And she was able to speak with Jesus. She was able to understand Jesus because he, the implication, had enabled her to hear, enabled her to speak. He had given her faith. Then in the feeding of the 4,000, we saw predominantly Gentiles uh, being fair Gentile believers in the controversy with the Pharisees. They ask for a sign, but it won't be given to them because uh, of the rejection of Jesus back in chapter 3. And then uh, the disciples are rebuked for their lack of understanding, not being able to understand, not being able to see because of their blindness, because they couldn't see that the feeding of the 4,000 was about the uh, gospel ultimately going to the Gentiles and not just to the Jews. And then we had the healing of the blind man finally, which is representative of the disciples. And that's where we left it last time. I'm going to pick it up uh, in that section just so you can uh, get the flow again. Remember in verse 22, there they are in Bethsaida. There's the blind man. Uh, he, he's begged them to touch him. And that is an act of faith. So he takes the blind man by the hand. He leads him out of the village. Why does he take him out of the village? Because since chapter 3, the, the Jews had committed the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And as I said at the time, that's not a sin that you or I or anybody else could commit today. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was a sin by a nation. It wasn't an individual sin, it was a national sin. It was done by that generation of Israel who rejected their Messiah when he came in the flesh to them. And the Pharisees said, no, you're not Messiah. You do what you do because you're possessed by Beelzebub. And Jesus said, right, that's it. There's no forgiveness. You're now under judgment. It's the third time in Israel's history that it happened. And so since that time, the miracles that he does are done for disciples who have faith. They're not done for the masses. The teaching that he does in public is in parabolic form so that the masses can't understand him. That The disciples he'll explain what he meant to them later so they can understand, but the rest of them don't. Israel has been judged. That's it. They're judged. And the judgment's coming. So when they heal this blind man, he takes him out of the village so other people can't see. And remember, this is for disciples. The, ma- the blind man is obviously a disciple. That's why he's being healed. The disciples are there watching. And how does he heal him? He takes him by the hand. He spits. He has some spit on his eyes. Why? Because that was something that the Pharisees taught was something that uh, was a method of healing that wasn't allowed. The reason was because pagans would heal that way. And because pagans heal that way, that must be sinful or at least pagans were alleged to heal that way. So the Pharisees said, you can't heal that way. So Jesus comes along and says, you're not telling me what I can't do. Because he's there to say, here's Pharisaic Judaism, and here's my way. 
You don't get to do both. You get to choose the way of the Pharisees or you get to choose my way. You don't get to do both ways. The two contradict one another. And so he spits to heal him and then he says, hey, do you see anything? Of course, Jesus knows what's going to happen. He looks up and he says, I see men. They look like trees walking. So the man who was completely blind is given vision, but the vision is an, is an unclear vision. It's an unclear vision. And when he sees men, the men look, might as well be trees. He sees, but he sees blurry. We have a, a good friend of ours called Max, who's Max is legally blind, but he can see but everything's really blurry. We used to, at the Bible college, you used to ride his bike around campus, and when you saw Max on a bike, you just moved. Because <laughs> you, you're never quite sure if he knew that you were, who you were, or whether he, you were in his way or not. But you get people like that, who are essentially blind, but, but they can see, but they just can't see very clearly. And the reason for the partial hearing is exactly what's happened in the previous section, what we're going to see in the next section. This is classic Mark. You know how Mark has these bookends where he'll, he'll have something and then he'll cut it out to something else and have something at the end? It's kind of like that. It's a little inclusio of sorts here. In that what he's done is he said, you disciples, can't you see? Are you blind still? And then we have the healing of a blind man and the blind man sees but he doesn't see clearly. That's the disciples. That's the disciples. And then what happens to this man who's now partially healed is Jesus lays his hands on his eyes again. He opens his eyes and his sight is restored and he sees everything clearly. And he sends him home, says, don't even enter the village. We don't want this word to get out because Israel's under judgment. So all of our issues we've been seeing through Mark, this is where we stand now in verse 27. And these themes that we've seen, the judgment of Israel, the judgment that's coming upon them, the irrevocable nature of that judgment, all of these things are ready for us now. The key theme in the last few chapters has been Jesus training his disciples. And we started off at the beginning of that section with Israel in blindness. Then we progressed and we saw that the disciples were the remnant. They were the ones that could see. But then Mark confuses us by trying to show us that the disciples are blind as well. And now in this final part of this section, we get to see Mark's point. The disciples can see, but their sight isn't clear. And that's the point. This is the, the climax he's been building up to. So the point of so much of the last few chapters is now clear. And that's where we left it last time. The disciples do have sight, but they have partial sight. They have enough sight to be able to see, but they don't have enough sight to be able to see clearly. Okay? What does that mean practically? That's what we're going to see in this section. And because he's going to show us what this means practically in this section, we're going to have a firm a firm uh, st st statement regarding the disciples' position, and then Jesus is going to respond to that statement, and he's going to change the nature of his ministry again. This is the biggest shift in the ministry of Jesus since the judgment of Israel back in chapter 3. Everything changed in chapter 3. Now it's going to change again. So let's have a look. 
So Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. The location becomes crucial in a study of Matthew's Gospel, but we're not doing Matthew's Gospel, so we won't really worry ourselves about it too much. Simply suffice to say, in Matthew's Gospel, this is the passage where there is talk about Peter, there's talk about a rock, and the location becomes crucial for understanding that. There's talk about the gates of hell, the keys of the kingdom. We're not even getting into that. Mark's not dealing with those themes. But that becomes crucial as far as location goes. And on the way, he asked his disciples. So while they're on their way there, he's talking to the disciples and he says, who do the people say that I am? Now, as we, as we wonder about this question, we have to understand the people is a very broad statement. The majority of Israel, we already know, are under judgment and they're blind. So we're not expecting them to see. The people as a whole, he's not saying, what do my disciples believe? What do, you, what do your fellow disciples think? He says, what do the people think? So we are specifically talking, I think, about non-disciples here. We're talking about what do the general population say. And we know everything in Mark so far has told us they are under judgment, and the judgment is blindness. They cannot see. They are the man who's been healed of blindness at the first part of that healing, before Jesus even spat on his eyes, before he's got any form of seeing at all. They're completely blind. So what do blind people say about Jesus? is really what's being asked. And they told him, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Now, this is really interesting. Okay, firstly, John the Baptist. We've seen John the Baptist already previously. There was a fear that Herod had. And Herod had a fear that having killed John the Baptist, that, that God was bringing judgment against him by raising John the Baptist from the dead. And that's who Jesus was, John the Baptist raised from the dead. And that rumor was obviously doing the rounds. And so there was a common belief at that time that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. And we've seen that already with Herod. Other people are saying that he's Elijah. Now, Elijah's interesting. Remember, John the Baptist was the forerunner. He was the one that was to come before Christ, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 3. We saw that when we did chapter 1. So he was the forerunner. But what is interesting is that there's another passage in the, gospel, in the Old Testament concerning the forerunner of the Messiah. And that's in the book of Malachi. And Malachi says that before the Messiah comes, that Elijah will come. Now, there was already belief that Elijah would come back. Because Elijah, remember, never died. He went off to heaven in a chariot. He never actually died. And so this, there was this idea that Elijah would come back. And Malachi, prophet Malachi, taught that Elijah would come before Messiah came. And that's why there's a lot of confusion between Elijah and John the Baptist in the Gospel accounts. Because John the Baptist says, hey, I'm the forerunner. And they're like, oh, we know the forerunner. The forerunner, Malachi told us, that's Elijah. You must be Elijah, come back. And he's a strange guy. He's wearing his, his, you know, his, his robes. He's a hermit from the wilderness. He's been eating locusts and honey. You know, this is the kind of maybe weird character that could be a resurrected Elijah. And... Uh, it's interesting in chapter 9, we might well see Elijah, but we'll talk about that in chapter 9. But um, the difference is, the problem is this, is that John the Baptist was the forerunner for the first coming. 
but Elijah will be the forerunner for the second coming. Malachi is speaking contextually of the second coming of the Messiah, whereas Isaiah was speaking about the first coming of the Messiah. So that's where the confusion happens, and that's why they're often mentioned side by side, because John the Baptist spoke of himself as a forerunner, and Elijah is associated with the forerunner. Um, and he says, others, one of the prophets. And uh, again, we will have a look and see whether... Uh, one of the prophets might be around in chapter 9 when we get there. But it's interesting that these people are mentioned at this point. But note that each of these people have something in common on a positive note and something in common on a negative note. Okay? On the positive note, all three of them have something in common. And that is they were godly men of the scriptures. Prophets, Elijah, John the Baptist, godly men. Today, lots of people will say positive things about Jesus. Oh, Jesus, I like Jesus, great man Jesus, clearly sent from God, you know, did amazing miracles, and, but they're blind. They don't know who he is. You know, you can believe that Jesus was from God. You can believe that Jesus was a prophet. Most of Islam believes that Jesus was a prophet. The Mormon church teach that Jesus was as highly exalted as any man ever has been or will be. Same with the Jehovah's Witnesses. I am involved with a whole bunch of people who are really into kind of health and things like that, and a lot of them have a really firm belief in Jesus being a, an important religious leader, but they don't go to the Gospels for their information. They go to sort of Gnostic, later Gnostic Gospels, where Jesus says nice things and never awkward things. He's all about peace, love, and understanding, you know? Doesn't say anything difficult like, take up your cross and follow me. They have a, a smoothed over, all awkwardness removed Jesus. Sort of Jesus you bring home to your mum, not the sort of Jesus that would offend your mum. That kind of thing. You see, all of these people, they can like Jesus and they can make him this religious person and they can say positive things about him. But the one thing that these guys all had in common negatively is that none of them were right. What we believe about Jesus Christ is the most important thing we will ever believe one way or the other. Our entire eternity is determined by this question here before us. Who do you say? Who do people say? Who is it that I am? Who am I? When Jesus asks who he is, how we answer that question determines our eternity. It's the most important question you'll ever answer. And so Jesus, having found out what they, um, what they were thinking, uh, the people, he then asked them, the disciples, but who do you say I am? This is crucial. People are blind. Are you blind? That's what he asked them just previously, just earlier in this chapter. Are you blind? Can you not see? Peter answers him, you are 
the Christ. You're the Messiah. And Jesus strictly charges them to tell no one. In other words, you got the right answer, but they are supposed to be blind. They are judged. They're in blindness for their rebellion, for their sin, for their rejection. You don't go telling them. Jesus will tell them later, when the time comes. But for now, you don't go telling them. But this is right, you're the Christ. Now at this point, Peter recognizing the Messiahship of Jesus Christ, you have all of these Old Testament scriptures concerning the Messiah. We've seen so many of them in Mark's Gospel already. We'll look at them more as the Gospel goes on. And when we get towards the end, we'll see them in great detail. But there's all of these prophecies concerning the Messiah. And Peter has recognized that the Old Testament prophets spoke of the king who would come and establish his kingdom. God's Messiah. Literally God's anointed one. God's chosen one. They'd seen the presence of God descend like a dove and anoint Christ. Spirit of God come down, showing him to be the anointed one. There is this Christ, this, this one who was sent, this one who is going to establish the kingdom. And Peter rightly says, boom, that's you. And Jesus says, don't go telling them. They're not allowed to be saved like you are. In other words, Peter can see. The disciples see. They can see what the other people can't see. They have sight. So are they like the blind man who's been healed? No. They're like the blind man who's halfway healed. As we'll see in the next verse. And Jesus, in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Now see that emphasis on plainly. Can you see the contrast? You are the Messiah. Don't go telling anyone. They're not allowed to hear that. They're under judgment. We only talk to them in parables. But now, I'm going to tell you something, and Jesus tells them plainly. No hiding behind parables. These are the believers. These are the ones who are saved. These are the true remnant. They have sight. They get to be taught plainly in a way that the people don't. Okay? Now notice, he began, he began to teach them that the Son of Man. In other words, they've just graduated. They've just graduated from year one, and they're going into year two. They've just graduated from high school, and they're off to college. They've just gone from the basics to the advanced. And here's what's going on, and this is what we have to understand, is that Peter and the disciples had a good understanding. Jesus has come, and he said, hey, I'm setting up the kingdom. Who sets up the kingdom? That's the Messiah. Jesus says, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's at hand. It's within your reach. Come and get the kingdom. This is what the prophets have promised for, for, for centuries. And now the kingdom's here. Now is the time for Israel to have their kingdom that was prophesied and promised. 
And what do the Pharisees do? And what do the Jews do? No, you're not him. You're possessed by Beelzebub. That's how you do miracles. Jesus says, you're done. Kingdom's gone. No offer. Now the kingdom's going to be different. There's going to be a kingdom, but it's going to be a different kind of kingdom for the remnant, not for the rest of you. And so Jesus starts teaching about that kingdom in parables. That's when everything shifts from plain to parables. But the disciples, this is crucial, the disciples, when that shift goes to the spiritual kingdom, that's when they start to struggle. That's when they start to struggle. That's when Jesus, having said, hey, these guys, these are the ones I choose, these are the ones I send out, these are my guys, this is when he starts to imply blindness with regard to them. Because they are looking for this physical kingdom. They're looking for Jesus to come down and rule and reign on the earth from Jerusalem. And he will. He will do that. But it didn't happen then because they rejected him. One day they'll cry for him to return. Hosea, Joel, the prophet spoke of that day. And he'll come. And he will have a physical kingdom. Absolutely no doubt. The Bible's very clear on that. But now it's a spiritual kingdom. And they don't understand the spiritual nature of the kingdom. So get, get this in your heads. Understand this. When the disciples see everything spiritually, they have an understanding of the Old Testament, but their Old Testament understanding is hindered by Pharisaic Judaism, by the teachings of the Pharisees. That's why the Pharisees came to Jesus, remember, in chapter 7, and said, some of your disciples aren't doing the ceremonial washing. And I said to you at the time, the question for me is not why are some of them not doing it, the question for me is why are some of them still doing it? Because it's hard for them to let go of their background. And so everything that they're seeing about the kingdom, about the Messiah, is coming through the veil of Pharisaic Judaism and the teachings that were popular in that day through the Pharisees, through the Sadducees, through the scribes, through the various religious leaders. And so when they are expecting the Messiah, they're expecting him to come, kick out the Romans, and set up his kingdom. Now that Jesus has established that these, that these disciples know who he is, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah. Christ is just the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. Same thing, Christ Messiah, same word. The anointed one. Now they know that he is that one. Jesus is now taking them to the advanced level. And he's taking them to teaching that was there in the Old Testament, but that was misunderstood and ignored by the Pharisees. He's taking them to the clear teaching in Isaiah 52, verse 13 through to 53, that the Messiah is going to suffer and the Messiah is going to die. That's what he's going to teach them. And if you need to know more about that, there was a wonderful sermon preached here, not by me, on Easter Sunday this year, and you can go back in the archives and have a look at it. Um, it's not a public one, but if you, um, if you I think there's a, a password or something you can put in to see it. But it was an excellent sermon all about how the Old Testament taught that Messiah would have to suffer and would have to die. And I'm really tempted at this point to go and 
spend some time in Isaiah 52 and 53, but we just get so distracted. We wouldn't be back to Mark for a month. So we're going to, we'll leave that for now. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar enough with it. But the key thing at this point is that Peter and the disciples weren't. And so the son of man is going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by the leaders. He's going to be killed. And after three days, he's going to rise again. Notice other gospel accounts will the other Gospels talk about on the third day. This says after three days. You just need to know that in the Jewish frame of reckoning, in the Jewish frame of counting, after three days and on three days means exactly the same thing. It just means the same thing. And they count each part of each day. So something could happen over a 48-hour period. Something could happen over less than 48 hours. Something could happen over 40 hours of time. And we would consider that to be less than two days. But if it went from a end of Friday, all of Saturday, and start of Sunday, then in the Jewish frame of reckoning, that's three days. And the end of it is after three days. That's how they would count and reckon time. So there's no, there's no problem there in any way. But that's what he's talking about. Now, as I said, he said this plainly. Now look what happens. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Okay? Hey, Peter! Who do you say I am? You're the Messiah. You're the glorious king who's going to set up his kingdom. 30 seconds later, Jesus, you mustn't do this. You're wrong. Man, isn't Peter just a model of discipleship for us all? I mean, that's, that's me. That's you, I bet, as well. You know, we praise you, Lord. We lift you up. We praise your name because you are God and you are sovereign and nothing is beyond you. Oh, why does this stuff keep happening to me two minutes later? Why am I in this situation? I don't, I don't know what's going on here. We're like the disciples in the storm. Why are you asleep, Jesus? This, this, uh, this dichotomy of faith. Just how one minute, uh, yeah, you're the Messiah, and the next minute you're, ugh. But I tell you what, I love this stuff. You know why I love this stuff? Because it gives me hope. It gives me hope. Because you know what? Jesus spat and put his spit on that blind guy's eyes, and the guy saw, but not clearly. But by the time Jesus had finished with him, he saw everything clearly. Sometimes you and I are like Peter. Yay, Jesus! Ten minutes later, Jesus who? We can be like that. But the good news is that Jesus will complete his work. He who began a good work in you, we saw in Philippians 1, will be faithful to complete it. He'll complete and finish his work. Those he saves, those he justified, he glorified. Romans 8. If Jesus saves you, he finishes the work. That's what Ephesians 1 tells us, that he gives us his Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a deposit, guaranteeing that he'll finish the work. If he gives us faith, if he gives us his Spirit, then one day, every one of us who have the Spirit, every one of us, who has sight, every one of us who sees, no matter how blurry, one day we'll see him face to face. One day we'll be without sin. One day we'll have our bodies restored, renewed, and be glorified. One day everything will be 
perfected. He will finish his work. He will do it. But Peter, for now, is rebuking him. Now, this is a very interesting phrase coming up next, okay? So Peter is rebuking him. Let's, let's just get, our, let's get in our mind's eye what that looks like, okay? So he's going to tell them he began to teach them. So it's not like Jesus says, oh, by the way, guys, this is what's going to happen. And then immediately there's this. This is more than that. Jesus is now starting a new course with the disciples. Okay, you know who I am now. You have faith in me. You trust me. You know I'm the king. You know I'm here for the kingdom. Now you've got to understand the nature of this kingdom. You've got to understand the spiritual side of the kingdom. You've got to understand, as we saw this morning, the need for emptying for glory to come. We don't just get glory, we have humility and emptying, and then we have glory. You've got to see there has to be suffering before there is going to be glory. And you have to see the implications of that for your discipleship. So that's what he now begins to teach. So going on from this point, right the way through now to the end, we're going to see his teaching of the disciples really focusing on this. He's not just teaching them generally, do you know who I am? And they know who he is. He's teaching them more specifically now, you need to know what's going to happen to me, and by implication, what's going to happen to you. So Peter then, at some point, having heard this, maybe he heard it once, maybe twice, maybe three times, maybe four times, maybe he'd been lectured on it for an hour, maybe they have four one-hour lectures, maybe they've been traveling on the road for five hours one day, and Jesus talked about it non-stop. Do you think that Jesus just said things randomly? He taught them plainly. He says, the Son of Man's going to have this happen. Do you think he's going to do that without quoting Isaiah to them? He's showing them from the scriptures what's going to happen and why it has to happen. And Peter says, no, no, Jesus, you've got it wrong. You've got it wrong. Let me teach you the scripture. Let me tell you the right interpretation. How ridiculous is that? But we do it when we see a scripture and we don't like what it says, sometimes we wiggle and wriggle our way out of it. What I like to call exegetical gymnastics. We twist and turn like a game of twister to make the text not say what it actually says because we don't like it. And that's what Peter's doing. He's like, I can see that text. But the Pharisees told me it meant something different, and I don't like what you're saying, so I'm sticking with the Pharisees. And there's, there's some good points here in, along the way, but just in passing. Number one is, sometimes in Christian theology, it's a case of first come, first served. Like you become a Christian, you get taught some stuff, and what you get taught the first time, well, it's the first thing you learned, so it must be right. And sometimes it's hard to come along later down the line and recognize that you've been taught something where the interpretation wasn't right. And that's why with our ministry here, we try and really emphasize a text-based ministry. I don't want people saying, oh, well, Pastor Anthony says this, or Pastor Anthony says that. Who gives a stuff what Pastor Anthony says? What does the text say? That's what matters. And that's why I always try and show you the text, show you the text, Rather than say, well, I think this and I think that, wherever possible, look at the text, look at the reasons, look at the whys and the wherefores. And I think to a degree, 
the uh, disciples were raised on a way of understanding the Messiah, and it's very hard for them to unlearn that. But secondly, they just didn't like what he was saying. Just didn't like it at all. Now, here's the interesting phrase I was going to get to five minutes ago. But turning and seeing his disciples. Okay, so here's the picture. Peter, we're told specifically, took Jesus aside. So here they are in the group together with the other disciples, and Peter says, Jesus, can I have a quiet word? And now Jesus and Peter are away from everybody else. Now Peter, we know, is a bit of a big mouth. So he's there, Jesus, you mustn't do this, you mustn't do this. And at this point in the conversation, though they're separate, Jesus turns and he sees the other disciples. In other words, and this is crucial, what Peter has been doing privately has now become public. And that is why Jesus responds the way he does. Because initially, Jesus can simply respond to Peter. But now Peter has done it in such a way that the others are aware, and now Jesus has to respond in a way that's going to teach all of them. And listen to what he says, because it's ridiculously radical. And and when we're talking about difficult scriptures we try and avoid, here's one of them. He sees the disciples. He rebuked Peter. Notice the parallelism here with rebuke. Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus rebukes Peter. He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Okay. How do we deal with this? Well, firstly, let's be clear about several things. Firstly, Jesus just called Peter the devil. (laughs) He did. That's what he did. And if your idea of Jesus is still gentle Jesus, meek and mild, if your idea of Jesus is that he's got so much love for everybody that he would never say boo to a goose, then you don't know the Jesus of the Bible. He just took the spokesman of his disciples. He just took one of his key inner circle. He just took the guy that declared him to be Messiah and he said, get behind me, Satan. Now what's going on here? Is Peter possessed by Satan himself? No, I don't think so. Another disciple was eventually, that was Judas. But I don't think Peter was. I think Jesus is making his point. but He's making it very clearly and very boldly. Listen, there is, to use a phrase from the Wizard of Oz, there's a whole other world behind the curtain when you pull the curtain back. We live in a world where we deal in physical realities, standing at the pulpit, Bible made with paper in front of me electronic device here and a microphone there. We deal in a physical realm. And everything we see day to day is physical. And we, we, we deal in that realm. You know, you fall over, you hit your arm, you, you get a bruise, you, 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 know, you, you cross a road and there's traffic, you don't want to get run over by a car. We're dealing in physical realities. We go out all day, if you've been out in the sunshine today, there's a hot sun out there today. It's a physical reality. We're dealing in a physical realm. But God's 
main purpose is the spiritual reality that's behind the curtain. We mentioned this morning Yahweh being the God above all other gods. We talked about how there are other spiritual beings referred to as gods in the Bible. Angels. Demons. And demons were often the false gods. I don't believe that when I don't believe that when the Jews abandoned Yahweh and worshipped Baal that they were simply worshipping something made up. It was a demon they were worshipping. In the book of Daniel, Daniel gets the curtain revealed to him and he gets to see that while he's been praying and fasting, there's been a battle in the spiritual realm between Michael and the prince of Persia, a demonic creature that was given authority over the geographic realm of Persia, which is modern-day Iran. And you can't help but wonder whether the prince of Persia is still going. And I, I truly believe that those who worship Allah, the God of Islam, that they are not just simply worshipping a made-up being, but they are worshipping something that is profoundly demonic. This is the reality of the spiritual realm. Do you remember when we went through Ephesians, one of the most radical things we saw in the entire book of Ephesians was that the, the mystery of the church, the Jew and the Gentile coming together into one body, these two, these two groups that have been divided historically for so long. That God had raised up Abraham and raised up Isaac and raised up Jacob and had his descendants, that because the other nations had fallen, the other nations had rejected Yahweh, that God, and there's an interesting passage in Deuteronomy 32 that suggests that, 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 that these demonic beings were assigned to these different, these different nations. And God says, I'm having this nation, which is my pure nation. And, and the division between Israel and the other nations just went on for, for millennia. And then now, in these last days, God, unrevealed in the Old Testament, God was always going to save Gentiles, but the idea that the Jews and the Gentiles could be united, that they would have the same Holy Spirit, be in the same church, under the same gospel, that was revolutionary. And in that passage in, in Ephesians, God talks about it being a declaration to the powers and the authorities of the wisdom of God. In other words, here we are thinking about Jew and Gentile and people coming together and God saying, hey demons, look how clever I am. Look at my church. Isn't that amazing? That God is thinking in that realm, in that whole area. Now, back to our text. What Peter is saying here, sorry, what Jesus is saying about Peter here, is he is, at the very minimum, he is linking Peter with being an accessory to the plans and the goals of Satan. Now, Peter's not, Peter isn't a Satan worshipper. Peter isn't there saying, you know what, I've had enough of Yahweh, I don't like this, this message, I'm going to go and pray to Satan. 
He's not saying that at all. But yet he's doing the work of Satan. Satan is using Peter. And when he says, get behind me, Satan, he isn't just talking, he's not talking to Satan, he's talking to Peter, but he's making it clear that Peter is working for Satan in what he's saying and doing. Remember, Satan has no problem with Jesus dying. He doesn't want to stop Jesus from dying. He wants Jesus dead. He just doesn't want him to die in the right way at the right time. Doesn't want him to die at Passover, doesn't want him to die on the cross, but he wants him dead. He just doesn't want him to die and fulfill scripture in his death. And what Peter is doing here is saying, hey, you don't want to go to the cross. Let's set up a kingdom. Let's, 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 this, this is how things are supposed to be here now. This is our time. Avoid the cross. Avoid the cross. Avoid the cross. That is the ministry of Satan. Guys, this is, why we, this is why we won't have false doctrine. This is why we don't tolerate false teaching. Because even people who believe, even disciples, can do the work of Satan when they disregard the word of God. What was, what's the solution for Peter? The solution is in the word. But he's not paying attention to the word. He's listening to his heart. It's the rubbish we hear in this world today. Listen to your heart. Follow your heart. Listen to your gut instinct. Go where your heart leads you. That's exactly what Peter's doing. And he's serving Satan as he does it. The worst advice a Christian can give another is to follow your heart. Your heart's wicked. Your heart's sinful. Don't follow your heart. Follow the word. Follow the word. That's what you do. Don't feel like it. Doesn't make sense to you. Tough. Do it. We're coming to that next week now probably. But we're coming to that. So get behind me, Satan. And here is the four, and here's the explanation behind the thinking here. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We just always want to see things from a human perspective. It doesn't make sense to us. That, it didn't make sense to Peter anyway, that, that Jesus would come as the king and establish the kingdom and then because of these stupid little Jewish leaders, he's not going to set the kingdom. We're here, we believe, set up the kingdom for us. That's crazy talk. Dying, suffering. We're going to win, and those guys who rejected you, they're going to lose, right? But you're saying that they're going to, they're going to punish you and imprison you and kill you? No, no, no. They don't get to win. We get to win. We're on the king's side. Surely... That sounds so stupid to us now, doesn't it? I mean, with hindsight, living post-cross, how dumb does that sound? Made a lot of sense right there, right then. Made a lot of sense. Why would you allow me to suffer this way, God? Why would you put me through this? Why would you put my family through this? Why won't you answer this prayer? Why can't you change this? Why would you turn this around? Why won't you do it like this, God? It, it doesn't make any sense to me, God. Surely if you answer the prayer that I'm praying, then you'll be more glorified. Right now, what's going on is shaming your name. This doesn't make any sense, God. How's that any different than Peter? 
when we wrestle and we fight with God and his plans. We have our plans and we want our plans to flourish. We want to see this happen. We want to see that happen. We've got, maybe got a career path or we've got a, a plan for what's going to happen with our lives or our family's lives. We know how it should be. How come God can't see it? And he says to us, as he said to Peter, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Guys, we'll do the other verses next week. This, we've got to understand. If we're Christians, and we're disciples, and we allow our mind to be distracted by the physical realm and we see things with the eyes of man, we are perfectly able to do the work of Satan. I don't know about you, but I don't want to do the work of Satan. If we want to follow God, well, Jesus is going to tell us next week what that looks like, how that's different, what the alternative is. So we'll turn there next time. But this week, let this ring in our ears. Are we going to look at things through man's eyes or God's eyes? Are we going to be the one who denies himself, takes up his cross, and follows Jesus to death if necessary? Are we going to be the ones who try and save our lives? physically and yet lose them spiritually are we the one prepared to empty ourselves to give ourselves away that God might then glorify us all the more or do we need to have the glory now do we need to have the comfort now do we need to have our needs met now can we look at suffering and trust God to be in control of the storm? Can we look at our suffering and see how God will have his purposes and his plans in the midst of that? Is it enough to trust him, our captain, with the boat? Or are we going to rebuke him? I, for one, have rebuked Christ far too often. How can you do this to me? Why would you do that? I understand Peter. I understand him all too well. The remedy? We've got to think God's way. Get our eyes off things of this world. Look with spiritual eyes. Prioritize. I want us to be servants of God. I want us to be used by God. If he's got to beat us up to get us there, he's got to beat us up to get us there.
we don't get to choose. Are we Christ followers? He suffered. He died. Do we want to follow him there? That's the challenge. These guys wanted the kingdom. Oh, they wanted the kingdom. They're going to get a glimpse of it in the next chapter, but not yet. First of all, Jesus is going to tell them what disciples really look like and what disciples really do. And we'll come back and we'll see that next time. Let's pray. Father, I want to, I want to repent of the times I've rebuked you. May I see more clearly. May I trust you in the storm. Father, may we all see the spiritual realities and prioritize those over the things of man. That you might be glorified through our discipleship this day and until you redeem us. Amen.